And so if you guys would not mind opening your Bibles to the book of James, uh, chapter um, 5 is the first verse. Keep your finger there, and why don't you turn very quickly to the book of Galatians, chapter 5 as well. So James 5 and Galatians, chapter 5, and what I want to kind of do is preface this by basically saying over the past several months, we've been going through kind of an exposition of the book of Galatians, uh, the past few weeks, we started looking at this section, which is typically called the fruit of the Spirit. And what this is, is it's basically a series of nine um, fruits that Paul outlines. We saw like love and joy and peace. Today, we're going to be taking a look at the element of patience, what patience is. And we are basically identifying that not only are these to be actions which God's people live out, hence the idea of their fruit of the Spirit, meaning God's working them in our lives and Paul actually, uh, in writing this letter to this group of people in Galatians, kind of pegs this or juxtaposes this against what he describes as the fruit or the work of the flesh. So the work of the flesh might be dissension, whereas the fruit of the Spirit might be patience. So uh, the fruit of the Spirit would look like showing patience and help and care and kindness, whereas the work of the flesh would be, I want to kill you. I want to wring your neck. And uh, so there's this ongoing tension going on between uh, these, work, these works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. But what we said several weeks ago is that the fruit of the Spirit are actually these characteristic traits of God himself. With that being said, I want to jump in. So an element, the element is that we're going to be taking a look at this concept of patience today and trying to understand what patience is in the life of the believer, but preeminently what patience is in the life of God himself as it really is a characteristic of God himself. With that being said, I want to jump in by really prefacing all of this by saying, as I was looking at this and trying to understand what patience is, um, you know, when, when you're teaching the Bible and when you are trying to prepare for these types of things, you come face to face with the reality that there are elements that you have to teach that may not be congruent with your life. And, and to be quite frank with you, th- this is my vice, all right? Um, I'm teaching on patience today, but I've had to come to grips with the reality that um, my sin, my great sin, the thing that I, I feel most ashamed of, to be quite frank with you, in my life, is the fact that I'm not patient. I'm not patient as I should, and I wrestle with that. I honestly, to be quite frank with you, as I confess even before you guys as your pastor, this is an area that I am deficient in. I'm not patient the way I should. Um, I'm, I, I, I don't hold my tongue the way that I ought. It's something that even before I was a Christian, I became a Christian when I was around 16, late 15, early 16. And um, my parents had split up, had broken up, divorced. I became very independent. In a lot of ways, my world revolved around myself. I was my own king over everything. And, and a lot of times, patience, as we'll see today, is oftentimes really when you begin to realize somebody else interferes with your, your monarchical reign, your kingdom, your domain, and therefore you, because you're the authority, you take matters in your own hands and you execute judgment. So you not only become the lawmaker, but you become the arresting police officer as well as the judge, as well as the hangman, all wrapped in one convenient package. And, and I realized that that was me, Before I became a Christian, I realized even as I'm a Christian, this is my number one area that I would look at my life that I'd say that I I fail in. I'm not patient the way that I ought to be. And it's because of my impatience that oftentimes I cause great pain, uh, even to my wife. 
into my own kids because I'm not patient the way that I ought to. I've caused great pain in the hearts and the lives of people that I've cared about, people that I've loved. Um, and yet, because I don't have control over my attitude or over my tongue the way that I ought to, or because I'm not patient the way that I ought to be, I, I can also bring great harm and pain upon other people's. And so honestly, I wrestle with this. I wrestle with this. And I say this, is just simply be honest with you, not in any way of boast. In fact, quite the opposite. I feel greatly ashamed of this reality in my own life. But at the same time, I realize that when you teach the Bible, when you teach elements of God's word, you realize sometimes there's this element about it where you begin to think, I need to be an authority on this issue in order for me to speak on it. In reality, that's a fallacy. I, I can never be an authority on anything in the scripture. And, uh, and, and if that were to be basically a prerequisite to be able to teach the Bible, then really none of us would be able to be allowed to teach the Bible or even open our mouth in public or tell other people about Jesus because none of us are an authority on it. And so at the end of the day, I rest, honestly, my comfort and my confidence, not in my having um, gone far in this process of patience, that's not where the authority comes from. In fact, I'm not an authority on it, but the authority comes from God's word itself. It comes from God. God is an authority on this. God speaks on behalf of it. God talks a lot about patience, and therefore me as a fallible, broken human individual who struggles in this area a lot, I'm gonna do the best that I can to try to be faithful to what God has to say about himself and faithful with regard to this issue of patience. All that being said, wrapped up in this understanding, this is something that I'm still in process of learning. That's why one of the reasons I love, I love this great quote from John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. He said this, I'm not what I ought to be, nor what I wish I to be, nor what I hope to be, but I can truly say that I'm not what I once was. That's, I feel like in a lot of ways that's me. I mean, the greatest uh, judges about the progress of my patience in my life is not myself. I can't look at myself and say, you know what? I think I'm doing pretty dang good on patience. The greatest authority about these, obviously, aside from God himself, are those who are closest to me, my wife, my kids, uh, Pastor James, other pastors and leaders and people that I'm closest with. I can ask them, and I want to ask them, and I do ask them, how am I doing in these areas? Because I want to grow. I don't want to remain the same. I want to keep progressing in these areas. Why? Because at the end of the day, God's patient. I want to be patient because God's patient. It's a quality of God that I want. With that being said, I want to pray, and we're going to get to work on this. Enough about me. Let's get into what God has to say. Let's take a look at this. God, we ask you right now that you would help us to just understand your heart. We need your wisdom, your insight, your understanding, and we just submit ourselves to you. We submit ourselves to your word. God, we recognize there are flaws and broken areas inside of each one of us in which we want to change. God, I know for me this is, this is definitely one of the big ones, that I want to be patient the way you, Jesus, are patient with me. Uh, so God, we ask you right now, I ask you right now that you just humble my heart, humble all of our hearts, and God, we want to just set ourselves at your feet, really where the audiences that have won, we, we sit at your feet, and we want you to speak to us, we want you to convey and communicate your heart to us, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Galatians chapter 5, I'm just going to kind of go by... Um, Memory is what it says here in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, where he starts off and he says, love is patient, kind, um, and then he goes on, I'm sorry, you know, he, 
sorry, the fruit of the Spirit. I don't even know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to go by memory because I can't even memorize Scripture. Here's what it says. I'll read it. All right, let's stick with that. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 says this. He says, uh, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and patience. And we're going to stop right there, patience. Next week, we'll take a look at kindness. I want you guys to turn real quickly to the other verse, is, which is uh, James chapter 5. And I want to read this to you, James chapter 5, because <clears throat> James also writes about this element of patience. And uh, James is going to tell us a little bit about what that has to do. And here's what he says. <clears throat> It says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the latter rains. He says, you also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another. Brothers, so that you may not judge, so that you, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. I want to basically first jump into this and trying to understand what this means by trying to first of all, wrap our minds a little bit about what patience is not. In other words, the opposite of what patience is. Sometimes one of the best ways to understand what something is is to sort of understand what it's not. And so the idea of, that, of patience that he's going to be communicating about is really important. He actually juxtaposes this idea of grumbling in next verse, next slide, of grumbling against patience. So take a look at it again. He says in verse 7, be patient Therefore, brothers, and then verse 9, he kind of adds sort of the antidote. He's like, don't grumble, right? So be patient, stop grumbling, stop complaining, stop being critical, stop always looking at people in terms of that very critical eye. So in other words, he's going to tell us that kind of that is the opposite. I mean, yes, impatience is in there, obviously, as sort of the opposite of patience, but the way that impatience works itself out oftentimes is through grumbling, through complaining, through murmuring, all these words that sort of identify someone that we really, in a lot of ways, don't particularly like to be around. One of the things I think it's important to understand is that when we talk about either any of these fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience, all of these are really characteristics of God. And whenever we identify them or see them in somebody else, we marvel at them. We always love people. When we see somebody who's loving, we love that person. When we see somebody who's patient, we love that person. When we see somebody who's kind or somebody that's at peace or somebody that's just got rest, we like gravitate to those people. The people we don't gravitate to are those that are obnoxious, that grumble and murmur and complain and are self-centered and are constantly nagging, that are constantly treating you like a slave and everybody else like a slave around them. Those are the people we don't gravitate towards. In fact, we oftentimes dislike those people and distance ourselves from those people. But the point that I think the Bible is going to communicate and convey is that when we talk about especially something like the element of patience, these are characteristic traits of God. I'll give you an example. Yesterday, um, my daughters and I, we went on this hike, this little walk. We went to this place called Point Bouchon Trail. You can look, look it up on Google. I'm not going to tell you where it's at because it's, it's honestly my favorite trail. It's beautiful. And I don't want too many of you guys to go there because then it'll spoil its beauty. And uh, if you want to find it, you can track it down. But other than that, I'm just, that's it. That's all I'm going to tell you about it. But as we were walking on, you know, it was gray yesterday. It wasn't that beautiful as far as the sun being out and all that. But, you know, the, 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 the skies were gray, the ocean was gray. But 
the side of the hills were all green, super green, and there are all these poppies everywhere. It's just absolutely bright and brilliant orange. All these like little speckles of, you know, brilliant colors all around. We were just talking about the colors. We're like, man, it's amazing. All these colors that are out there. And I started kind of thinking about how we as human beings, a lot of ways, we like color. Some of you are like, I mean, it looks like the pastor always wears black, right? He's talking about color. Well, they tell me that black makes you look slim. So that's why we're black. But I do like color. But the point back on track is that we as human beings, we like color. You know, an artist paints with all sorts of colors. Um, photography, one of the most beautiful elements of photography, other than black and white, is, is co- the color element of it, right? If you're in black and white photography, you're in black, yeah, you don't like color. But the point of the matter is, is that for the most part, we, we love color. We incorporate color into lots of things. Album colors, art, um, you know, websites. Some of you wear very colorful clothes. We're into color. And the thing that really struck me is the reality is that, you know, all the colors that artists paint with, all the colors that graphic designers use, all the color that we enjoy actually is derived or borrowed from the color palette of God. I mean, our enjoyment of these brilliant colors is, is that it all comes from God. Uh, heaven is not monochromatic, all right? There's not just like one color there. It's full of color, full of brilliance, full of beauty, In a very similar way, when we look at attributes of patience in other people, what we're actually marveling at and what we're actually enjoying is revelations or snapshots of God himself or elements of who God is characteristically shining through people. When we look at somebody who's very loving, we're actually looking at snapshots or sort of you know, a little bit of an appetizer of elements of who God is. So what we love about people that are loving or love about people that are patient or love about people that are full of peace is that we're actually loving those elements of God himself in them. Does that make sense? It's all derived or borrowed from God. So when James and Paul talk about this element of patience, they're, they're talking about the natural characteristics of God, who God is. And yet, this is the beauty of all of this, that Paul is actually saying, when God comes and takes up residence in our heart, he changes us fundamentally. So rather than living out according to the works of the flesh, like what he already described, he describes, take a look at a couple of these in Galatians chapter five, um, just before that, he says, now the works of the flesh in verse 19, that are under the law, he says, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. You're like, that's my old boyfriend. That's my ex-husband. You're like, right. And that's what you despise those elements. But do you realize, do you realize that all of those things that you hate about other people Oftentimes, one of the reasons why you are so good at identifying them in other people is because they're resident inside you. I mean, C.S. Lewis kind of puts it this way in Mere Christianity. He says, the reason why I'm an expert at identifying pride in other people, because I'm, I'm prideful. I'm so good at identifying it. I can totally relate to that. It's because we live in that realm ourselves, and so therefore, we become experts at identifying our own vices in other people. And yet, the gospel changes us fundamentally in our core. 
that it's not about you just simply becoming loving or forcing or imposing love upon yourself. This is what we've been saying all along. Religion comes along and says, look, you got to be loving people because love is good. Just be loving. Or you got to be kind people just because kindness is better than being a jerk. Or you should be peaceful because everybody hates an agitated, just aggravated, nervous, twitching type of a person. Nobody likes being around that person. So be patient. Be loving. Be kind. But it's devoid of all power because I can sit here and yell at you for an hour, tell you to be patient. Will any of you be changed fundamentally and become more patient? I can yell at you about being loving. Be loving. Will any of you actually be more loving? Will any of you actually walk out of here saying, you know, I, I, I want to love people because I just got yelled at for an hour about not being loving? <laughs> no, we don't change that way. That's not how we live. That's not how we become different people. The way that the gospel changes us is not by imposing law, no matter how good or righteous or just they are, on us and saying, do this. The gospel comes in and changes us by saying, here's what God did to you. You were unlovely, yet he loved you. You were full of turmoil and agitation, yet the God of peace took up your turmoil, bore it upon himself in order to give you peace. That's where the gospel, gospel comes to us and says, here's what God has done for you. Here's how much God loves and cares for you. He bore your shame. He bore your pain. He bore your guilt. That warms our heart. That changes us fundamentally to the core whereby we now are transformed and therefore when we get the gospel, then it, in a lot of ways it gets us and we become different. We become loving not by imposing love upon ourselves. We become patient not by imposing patience upon ourselves as sort of this superficial standard that's better than being impatient or a grumbler. But we become different based upon how the gospel changes us. We see things in a different light. So what the Bible is going to basically describe to us is that we need to be changed and we need to understand somewhere the, the, how we have to change. There's got to be some sort of a, 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 a motivating factor that transforms us. Now, this is difficult for us, especially in this world. Here's why. Because we live in a culture of impatience. We, we do. We live in a culture of great impatience, meaning we want things now. I mean, we get angry. We get angry at our microwave because it's not defrosting our chicken in a minute. All right? That was me yesterday, by the way. All right? We're like, we get frustrated and angry because things aren't being done fast. I mean, a minute. A minute. I mean, I don't know. Back in like caveman days, it took hours for chicken to defrost. The bottom line is that in our day and age, in our day and age, we expect things to be done right now and we get frustrated when they don't. We carry the same idea into our everyday life. We want things to be done immediately. We want to grow immediately. We want things to be done at the snap of our fingers immediately. Because at the end of the day, we think that we're entitled to immediate growth. And when people don't line up and start servicing us the way that we expect them to, we become impatient with them because we feel entitled to their servicing of us. <laughs> After all, my needs are no doubt better than yours. One scholar put it this way, and I think it's really insightful. He describes it this way. Um, hell 
the fires of hell are actually at work in all of us all the time. I'll give you an example. James actually talks about the tongue is set on fire by hell, meaning, I think, the idea is that there is this notion of these fires of hell that are already currently active. It's what other scholars, I think, would mean when they talk about original sin, meaning we are born in sin. We are born in a way whereby we will just, by nature, natural gravitation, go towards a path of hell. N not that you guys are there, but you get the idea. We, we just naturally gravitate towards something that is hell-ish, hell-like, but ultimately which will culminate in the judgment of God itself. So unless something comes in and interrupts that course, disrupts that course, snatches us from that course externally, the gospel, Jesus, then, then we keep going on that path. We need to be rescued. He describes it this way. <clears throat> he says this, hell is your life for mine. It's like you live in a way where your life is for mine. And I think this is very, very insightful because most of us live, in fact, I would say all of us live with this mentality that we will take from you, you know, for example, myself, I will take from you, we will borrow things from you, we will use you as long as it's something that is for my benefit. That's how we all live. That's how we all live. We will engage in relationship with people. I mean, think about it this way. The type of friendships that you have today, right now, your circle of friends, all right, the closest five friends that you have, the closest 15 friends that you have. I'm not talking about the 700 Facebook fans you have. I'm talking about your closest friends, all right? People that you actually would consider yourself your close friends. Why are they your friends? Why? Think about it this way. Most of the friends that we choose, the business partners we relate with, the people we spend the most of our time with are oftentimes at the end of the day there in our lives because they are some sort of value and benefit to us. They help us advance in our career, so we make choices of individuals that will actually help us to advance. I mean, after all, if we're going to try to, gonna try to uh, climb the corporate ladder, if it's just some nobody, if it's like the custodian, we're like, why befriend the dude, all right? He, he, he doesn't, he's not going to get me to climb the corporate ladder. I need to know the vice president. I need to hang out with, you know, the boss's daughter or somebody or something. I need to make friends. I need to broaden my circle so that I can posture myself so I can use your life for mine, for my advancement. And so what happens oftentimes in our relationships is when these relationships crumble, one of the reason, reasons why they crumble is because we cease to find value in that particular relationship or that particular person any longer. In other words, we see them as not being really a help, an asset, but we see them as a liability, right? I mean, I, I think we can all look at people in our lives we're like, dang, that person is a liability, all right? I will distance myself from them. Their life, their actions, the way that they act, the things that they say, they're a liability to me. They're a liability to my career. But most of the people, I think, if we were to be really, truly honest with us in our lives, most of them oftentimes are there because we view them as an asset to our personal growth, to our personal joy, to our personal benefit, to the advancement of our career, to something that will actually help us to live. I'm just simply saying the way things are. And I think the reason why, as a scholar identified it as, as is because we live with the fundamental concept of your life 
for mine. And the moment you cease to be a value to me, the moment you become a liability to me, I distance myself from you, I defriend you on Facebook, I delete you from my phone list, I get you out of my life, and if I had the means and the power and the ability to avoid any type of penalty, murder. (laughs) That's just the way it is. It's the way this world works. Your life for mine. It's this idea of the fires of hell at work. C.S. Lewis wrote the introduction to Milton's Paradise Lost. Here's what he said. He said, to admire Satan to get, is to, uh, to give one's vote to the world, is to give one's vote to the world of misery, lies, propaganda, wishful thinking, and endless autobiography. That, you, hell, hell is endless autobiography. All right, aside from judgment of God. But hell, think about it this way, that everybody is only concerned about the narrative of their own life at the expense of everybody else, all right? There's a book I just read Friday, great book. I've never read it before. It's uh, C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. It's an amazing book. Um, and really in this book, it's, it's a story, and it's not intended to be kind of a factual account of anything, and he kind of says that at the very preface of the book itself. And the whole point of the book is to basically outline and identify certain key element things that are at work in the hearts and the minds and the lives of people. And really the story is about uh, a character who gets on a bus, who gets taken to sort of this in-between world between heaven and earth, and every once in a while, you know, every, I don't know, 15,000 years, however many, um, the people from hell actually get issued up on a bus into this sort of, um, this realm, and the people from heaven, who are actually the, the physical people, the people from hell, are those that just have, they're just ghostly, they're like ghosts. And in this realm, the people from heaven try to convert the people from hell to try to talk them out of their hellish ways and the things in which they've discovered. But the thing is, all these people from hell don't think of hell as hell. They, they think of it as a place where everybody just cares about themselves. And, and it's very interesting. Again, C.S. Lewis is, is not saying that this is the way it is, and he says at the beginning, I'm not trying to speculate on anything about uh, you know, the future and all that. But in the book, he tells a story of this lady. She's kind of an old lady. She's a grumpy, old English lady. All right? And uh, so once you got grumpy old English lady in your mind, um, he begins to describe this gal as being just nitpicky and complaining. She's cantankerous. She's just grumbling and murmuring, complaining about everybody, everything, the way she died, the way people treated her, the way people didn't show her respect and kindness and all these things. And then the main character in the book turns to the guy that's sort of escorting him around. Um, it's actually uh, the, the author, George MacDonald. Maybe some of you guys are familiar with George MacDonald. Well, George MacDonald uh, dies and goes to heaven, kind of becomes a tour guide in this little in-between world. And uh, so he actually turns to George MacDonald, and he's like, I, I, I don't get this, man. Why, why is this lady in hell? Um, she, she's just a grumbler, you know? Uh, it seems like if she just had a nice little vacation and was able to rest a little bit, she'd be fine. George MacDonald then goes on to say to the main character in the story, here's what he says. He says, the whole difficulty of understanding hell is that the thing to understand is so nearly nothing. He says, but you'll have had experiences. It begins with a grumbling mood, and you yourself are still distinct from it, perhaps even criticizing it, and yourself in a dark hour may will that mood, and you may embrace it. You can, and yet you can still repent and come out of it again. But there may come a day when you can do no longer that. Then there will be 
No one left to criticize, no mood, not even to enjoy, but just the grumble itself going on forever like an endless machine. The point is that just before this, he makes this distinction. He says, well, the real question is we need to determine is she a grumbler or is she a grumble? And the distinction is, is that you might start out as just a grumbler, a human being that just nitpicks and grumbles and complains and you just got these little idiosyncrasies about you. But he says what happens is if you add eternity to that, at some point that grumble becomes one with the individual where no longer can you distinguish between the action of grumbling and the human being is, is completely lost in the grumble. They just become a grumble. Living with this mentality of your life for mine. That's why there's lack of patience. Because we feel ourselves entitled and we grumble. That's why James, I think, wisely says, be patient twice. And then he says, don't grumble. Grumbling, apparently, to James. Because let me say this. Sometimes we think of sin as being like this big, massive, like, Issues that oftentimes we identify in the news, we're like, oh, sexual morality, that's the big sin. And yeah, it's wrong, bad. Doing drugs, yeah, bad. You know, pilfering money, you know, lots of money, really bad. Uh, pedophile, pedophiles, really bad. Yeah, we can look at all of these things and identify levels of evil within those things. But apparently to James, his whole point is that, look, the opposite of being patient is this nitpicky, grumbling mentality that comes about inside of us, these fires of hell. And what a Christian is, is a Christian is somebody who's been given the ability to extinguish these fires. Christian growth is just constantly moving forward with this fire extinguished in your hand, putting out these fires. Non-Christians are those who choose to keep going on in that way. Eternity is forever. Your life, you will live forever. Not in this body. Someday this body will die and you will continue to live on forever. That's the point that Lewis is trying to drive at in this whole story, is that to live on forever in this grumbling attitude will at one point become indistinguishable from yourself, where you will lose yourself entirely in this sense of ingratitude, impatience, grumbling world. The reality is that heaven, this scholar also went on to say, if hell is your life for mine, heaven really is this element of my life for yours. Me laying my life down for you. That's exactly what the gospel is all about. That's what Jesus is. That's the heart. That's characteristic of God. You say, well, why did God lay his life down? Not because you're lovely. It's not because you're lovely. In fact, it's quite to the opposite of that. That even though you are unlovely, God, who is loving, laid his life down for you. You're like, well, maybe we added something to God. You didn't add anything to God either. I mean, God is not any better today now that he has you or I than he was 10,000 years ago when it was just him and the angels, all right, or whatever it was. The point that I would make is that in reality, this is the life of heaven, my life for yours, me laying myself down for you. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did for us. So with that being said, let's try to understand, because we can talk about what patience is in us and what it looks like 
and the incongruities within our own lives, we begin to realize, obviously, we're not very patient. All of us. We fail in this area of patience. We're not very good at it. We're not, um, we're not far enough to where we think we should be or far enough as we should be. And the reality is, is that we've got to try to understand a little bit stepping back from the text, stepping back from the Bible, and trying to understand how does the Bible portray a picture of God? Because if patience is on the color palette of God, then, then what is it in its truest form? What is patience in terms of God, God's patience? So with that, the first thing I want to try to do is in terms of sort of a negative sense. First of all, in a negative way, patience is not endless tolerance. It's not God just simply just tolerating everything, just putting up with it, dealing with it, just kind of biting his upper lip and just sort of just dealing with it. That's not what patience is, nor is it laziness. I mean, sometimes, you know, people might look at other people and they're like, man, they're just really patient. They, they never lose it. You know, maybe for some people, it's because they're cowards. They just don't have a personality that's willing to stand up. Or sometimes they're just lazy. I mean, sometimes they just, the reason why they don't act is they're just lazy. They don't want to move. They would rather just sit down. And that's not God. God's not lazy. He's not kind of operating some sort of realm of, uh, you know, everlasting or endless tolerance. Nor is it God excusing an offense. It's not any of these things. So really, what is it? Let's try to understand what this is. Here's a definition that I kind of derived a little bit from an author, a guy by the name of A.W. Pink, and I've kind of changed it a little bit. Here's what I came up with with him. <laughs> He's dead, but I don't think he'd mind. Anyways, God's patience is that excellency which allows God to sustain great injuries without immediately avenging himself. I'll pause right there. Just think about that for a second. It's his excellency, all right? It's this reality of who God is, all right? I mean, again, A.W. Pink wrote in a different generation, so excellency is kind of like this, this attribute, this beautiful attribute is what you'd say. Excellency is a beautiful attribute. So uh, God's patience is this beautiful attribute about himself which allows him to sustain great injuries without immediately feeling as if he's got to avenge himself. Just think about that for a second. Is that any of us? I mean, think about If someone were to walk up to you like right after church, slap you in the face, hit you in the stomach, or came up and insulted you and said, your clothes look horrible, your hair's messy, and you got buck teeth. Like, we, we would fire something back. I mean, depending upon who you are and your temperament, if you're big and strong, you might punch back, all right? All right? If, if you're a mobster, you might kill and dispose of the body. If you're quiet in your temperament, you might just smile and be like, eh, and you walk away, and in your mind you think, I want to kill that guy. I want to kill that person. I'll blog about them, or I'll send him a nasty note, or, you know, I'll go home and, you know, call my little gossip circle and talk about him. Doesn't, you know, we will all retaliate somehow, whether in action or in thought, in, in motive or in deed, okay? But, but God's patience allows him to actually sustain great injury and not immediately avenge himself. Think about that. That's huge. Finishes up with this. Exercising the power of patience as well as the power of justice as he chooses. We oftentimes think about God exercising or wielding his power when he wants. He creates planets, speaks things in the being, and they are, speaks words and calms an ocean, uh, says to a mountain, move, and it can be moved. But we rarely oftentimes think of God also exercising patience in the same type of way in which he would wield power. And yet God does. 
he wields, he wields his patience just as he would wield his power. That's an important element to understand about God. There are at least many different ways in which God shows patience throughout the Bible. First of all, God does this to Adam and Eve. We see this in the original garden, the original creation. Adam and Eve sin. God says, in the day that you eat of this fruit, you will die. Ironically, Adam and Eve died spiritually, but it wasn't until some 930 years later that Adam actually, physically died. Think about that. Adam sinned, the greatest sin of all. The greatest sin that actually brought a destruction over all of God's good creation. And God says, you know, I'll let Adam live another 900, I don't know, 29 years, whatever it was. You know, God doesn't immediately destroy him. Patience. Uh, we see God's patience even through Gentile nations. Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31. Paul, in preaching here, he says, the times past of, God, of ignorance of God, uh, God had overlooked. So there's a time God describes as there's a period where the nations just sinned. They did things that were in, a, in an offense against God, and yet God overlooked these things. Not swept them under the rug. Don't misunderstand that. Because God didn't sweep things under the rug. What God did is he piled up wrath upon wrath upon wrath of all the nations in the past and of all future nations in the future, of every type of genocide, of every type of innocent victim, person who died in Afghan war, Afghanistan war, in Iraq, in Libya, in Israel, wherever you want to think about, God has piled up sin upon sin, wrath upon wrath, and in the first place, God came and dumped all of that wrath upon his son. Never does he just tolerate and sweep it under the rug to forget about it. But he overlooked it. He overlooked it for a time. And then finally, we see God definitely showing patience to the Israelites. Acts 13 says this. Uh, verse 18, it says, For about 40 years, God put up with them in the wilderness. And in verse 19, after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. Now there's two attributes of God that are at play in this particular verse. The first of which is God's patience, meaning God suffered long with them. That's what the actual uh, Greek word can mean, um, is uh, to suffer long with something, to have great patience. In other words, you have a very, very high boiling point. It takes a long time for that water to boil. But nonetheless, it's getting hotter. That's the picture. And so the point is, is that God's going to identify that the Israelites, he showed patience to them, and finally, he shows kindness to them. That's a little bit of a sneak preview of a trailer for next week, as the next attribute we'll take a look at in this whole thing is the kindness of God. It goes, you know, love, joy, peace, uh, patience. Next week is kindness. These two things, in a lot of ways, are coupled. If I can look at it this way, patience is God's withholding something that we deserve. God's kindness is God's giving something that we don't deserve. You might want to call it uh, grace if you want. But that's the way that the Bible is going to identify this. So God demonstrates great patience to the Israelite nation, even though for 40 years they taxed God's patience, and yet God not only demonstrated patience with them by allowing them to live out their full life, even though it was in the wilderness, God sustained them, gave them manna every single day, gave them water from rocks, took care of them, gave his presence, describes it as a Shekinah glory, as like a cloud over them. So in the middle of these very, very hot, sunny days in the middle of the desert, God protected them with these clouds of his own presence. God took great care of them, didn't wipe them out. And then his kindness was demonstrated in that he allowed 
his or their sons and daughters to actually enter into the land that they didn't buy, they didn't purchase, they didn't fight for. God gifted it to them. Okay? So, the real question that I want to drive home is this. How is it that we become patient? Because really at the end of the day, all we've talked about so far is what God is, meaning God's patient, and the elements of God's patience and the attributes of God's patience. And we also kind of saw how we're not patient. So there's two things. One, we're not patient. God's patient. So if we were to stop right now and we'd walk out of here, nobody would be changed. None of you would walk out of here and be like, you know what, I'm just going to go be patient to my next door neighbor. Because they're always playing the drums, or their dog's always barking, or they're always parking in my parking spot. I'm just going to go be patient with them right now. You won't do that. I mean, if you do think you're going to do that, that has an expiration date of like, I don't know, 48 hours, all right? I guarantee you, by Tuesday, you would have already failed, all right? Now, you might not go and slash your neighbor's tires, but you would want to do that in your heart, all right? So you already failed. Or at the end of the day, if you, by after 48 hours, you're very patient, you're going to look at yourself in the mirror and be like, man, I'm good, I'm very patient. And you would have sinned the worst sin of all because you would become prideful. You're not extinguishing the flames, you're just fanning them. You're just fanning them. You're not giving yourself power, you're not empowering yourself to be loving, to be patient, to be kind. You're not empowering yourself to these things. All you're doing is you're superimposing certain moralistic realities that are good on top of you. And at the end of the day, you know what you only feel? You feel guilty. That's all we've seen so far. When we realize how impatient we are, when we realize how much we grumble, all that simply does to us is you just stuck a mirror up to you guys. That's all I did. I looked in the mirror, you looked in the mirror, and you just realized, I'm a loser. I'm not that good. All right, let's sing some, like, mellow emo songs and just get out of here, all right? <laughs> but we, 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 we weren't changed. We weren't transformed. And the point of the gospel is to actually change us. It's to transform us. Not morally, only. Because you can think that you become morally changed, but you're not changed. You've just got a moralistic straitjacket on you. But real change comes when you understand the gospel and you're different. And the only way that I'm really going to try to drive this home is the way that we change is not by guilting ourselves into patience, not by willing ourselves into patience, not by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, trying to force ourselves to be more patient. That does not change you. The way that you truly are changed, or let me put it this way, the way that you truly get motivation to be patient is you have to first and foremost understand how much you, how much I, in times past, have constantly taxed the patience of God himself. That puts things into perspective. When you realize, when you understand something of the element that all of us as individuals, and even as a body, corporately, we've taxed the patience of God. We've abused it. We've taken advantage of it. We've not been thankful to God as we ought. We've pushed boundaries and borders 
beyond areas where God says, don't push those boundaries and borders. And yet God continues to demonstrate kindness and mercy and patience to us time and time again. When we understand that, when we put that into that perspective, we begin to realize something changes fundamentally inside of us. We see things from a different angle. I think one of the best stories to illustrate this is from Jesus himself. It's this parable that he tells in Matthew chapter 18. I'm just going to sort of uh, uh, paraphrase it to you. Matthew chapter 18, around verse 23, about verse 35. Jesus tells you the story. A lot of you might be familiar with it. It's a story of a king and two servants. It goes something like this. There's a king that made a loan or gave away a large sum of money to servant number one. Scholars disagree as to how much the sum total of this is, but let's just say for the sake of the argument, it's $10 billion, all right? So the king was very generous, very kind, says, I'm going to give you $10 billion. Go do what you want with it. Be generous. Do what you want to do. So, but I'm going to want it back at some point. So servant number one goes on with his life. There comes a day when servant number one gets a message from the king and then goes and stands before the king and the king says, look, I, I want my money back now. It's my money and I'd like to have my money back. And servant number one is absolutely ashamed. He says, I don't have the money. There's, I, I can't pay it back. I don't have it with me. And then the king says, if you don't have my money, I want my money back. That was my gift to you. I'm demanding it back. If you don't give me my money now, what rightfully belongs to me, then away into prison you go, along with your wife and along with your kids, and all of you will suffer. And then immediately, servant number one begins to beg for mercy, and he's basically just begging, asking the king, saying, please forgive me. I promise you I will work as hard as I can. I will pay you back every single dime that I borrow. And we're basically just told this little story that Jesus says about the king. The king moved with compassion, exercises prerogative of patience rather than wrath, and then he says, listen, I'm not going to give you jail time. Not only that, and I'm not, not going to expect you to pay it back. I'll tell you what we're going to do. I will give you charity. I'm going to wipe it away, the whole debt. It's all gone. Your wife, your kids, everything that's rightful and just, I'm, 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 I will absorb the cost as great as it is on myself. You're free. So servant number one goes home. He has a servant, servant number two. He comes into the second scene, all right? Servant number one finds servant number two, and he says, look, I owe you money, all right? Interesting thing is in the story, Jesus basically says the amount of money that servant number two owed back to servant number one was like 10 bucks. He's like, I gave you money to go buy food from the roach coach, and you abused it, and I want my money back now, all right? Servant number two is like, I don't have the money. I'm probably going to get back to you tomorrow. He's freaking out, upset. Servant number one then says to servant number two, if you don't pay me back my 10 bucks right now, then I'm going to throw you into prison along with your wife and along with your kids, and you will pay until the very uttermost end. Word gets back to the king. King summons servant number one into him and he says, didn't I forgive you your debt, which was 10 billion? He's like, yeah. He's like, you're about ready to torture and destroy the guy who owes you 10 bucks. There's an incongruity going on here. The problem is, the problem is, is servant number one 
went on in his life, he forgot that he's a servant. And when the servant begins to think he's a king, is when you now, or the servant then, begins to feel levels of entitlement. He deserves certain elements of life, things that he feels are owed to him. So he fights for those things. He determines to get those things. And in other words, it's your life for mine. What you give to me, what you add to me, what you benefit to me, is I will extract out of you every last farthing, all right, or penny from you, and when you're done giving to me benefit for myself, I will do away with you. And if you can't pay me back, I will destroy you. The problem is, that's all of us. How do we change? Mere servants who think we're kings. That's the way we all live. You agree with that? That's the way we all live. If you're honest with yourself, that's the way we all live. We're really servants, but as servants, we think we're kings. We think we can make demands of people, feel entitlement to certain things, and especially when it's relationally, when we are engaged in relationships with other people. Let me tell you, if you think you're a king in a marriage, all right, and I mean not a benevolent king, all right? I got to change that because we use the phrase of king and queen in our marriage all the time, frequently. So I'm the king, obviously, and, but I hope to be a benevolent king, all right? And uh, the reality is that if in a marriage you live with a sense of not kind benevolency and you are a king that's abusive, you will destroy that marriage. You will store, destroy friendships. When you, as a mere servant in this life, think you're a king and you start looking at everybody else around you as your little servants who provide services for you to make your life benefit from them, their life for yours, then when they don't serve you as fast as they should or as good as they should, you lose all patience. And you grumble. You complain. You put them down. And like I said, if you had the means and the ability and the guarantee of never getting caught, you'd kill. It's a fire of hell. It's a blaze in every one of our hearts. So the question is, how do you and I change from thinking that we are servants, acting like kings? I'm telling you, the way the Bible is going to say this is not by wishing ourselves to be better people. The only way that we, as mere servants, thinking we're kings, going around executing judgments on everybody, is ultimately to see the true, amazing story of the king who became a servant. Jesus came as king of kings, left beside, leaving behind his throne into our world, not as a king, not entering in as a king, making demands or entitlements, not even coming to serve, not being demanding to be served, but to serve, Jesus said. He comes as one who humbles himself, even though he's king, as king, comes, lays that aside and says, I will be here to serve, ultimately to the point of the cross. We're on the cross, even while he was being mocked, shamed, publicly, openly scorned. Something which, if all of us, if that was us, we would at least curse him back. It was not uncommon 
for thieves when they were being crucified to urinate or defecate upon people that were spitting on them or at least cuss back or say something back. Their hands are tied up. Their feet are tied up. All they have is to do at least that. And the Bible simply tells us that Jesus on the cross withheld his tongue and with his last dying breath, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. The only way I'm telling you to become a patient person is for you to stop seeing yourself as a mere servant who thinks you're a king. It's for you to be able to see your king who became a servant, who bore, came the first time, not bringing judgment the way that we oftentimes execute judgment against people that don't line up with our world. Jesus doesn't come bringing judgment. He comes bearing judgment upon himself. That's what melts our hearts. When you see that you've taxed the patience of God and that even in your own sin, you've taxed it, Yet he still gives. Even though you're unlovely, he still loved. Even though you are agitated and aggravated the grace of God, he still gives. When you see your king who became a servant, that puts us in our rightful place. That's exactly what Paul's gonna say. Vengeance is God's. You don't have what it takes to render judgment on other people. You don't know everything that's going on in their life. You don't. But God does. We're going to worship. We're going to sing. We're going to respond. And one of the things that we do as Chris is coming up and we're going to sing, is we partake of communion every week. And as we partake of communion today and as we sing, what I want you to think about, aside from Paul saying, do it in a worthy manner. Do it, do it in a way in which you take into consideration what you're doing. Partake of communion, understanding the fact that the bread and the cup remind us of our king. And it reminds us of our king who laid himself down as a servant. For you. For me. For your sin, for my sin. Not bringing judgment. That will come someday. But taking judgment upon himself. Bearing your shame, bearing your sin, bearing your evil, wickedness upon himself, carrying that himself for us. Because God's patient. But don't mistake God's patient as always turning away from sin. There will come a day when God's patience will be finalized. And he will repay. There will be a day of judgment. But until that day, don't presume upon the patience of God. Trust it. Enjoy it. Love it. Run to Jesus. And worship God because of it. But let it make your heart humble and changed and loving. The only reason the only reason why we could ever remain impatient and judgmental and grumbling, complaining type people. The only reason 
is because we think we're more superior to the other person. It's the only reason. But when we see ourselves in perspective of our great God, who is the only superior, and we humble ourselves to Him, and we realize the grace that He pours unconditionally and unbelievably upon us, it humbles us. But it humbles us in a healthy way, whereby we then respond back in love and affection to our God. That is the engine, the motor, that will change you to become a patient person. Nothing else will. God, we thank you for the cross. And we humble ourselves to you, God, right now. And just say that we, in, in light of, in view of the mercies of God, like Paul says in Romans 12, in light of these things, God, we, we humble ourselves to you. God, we confess that our arrogance and our pride is our greatest vice. It's our sin that lifts us up and actually brings you down. When in reality, it's the complete role reversal where we need to lift you up and bring us down. We need to be humble. We need a humbling God that puts us, not just merely on our face, but puts us on our face in front of a humbling, loving God who picks up the humble, who raises the broken. That's what we need. So God, I pray that you would help us, all of us, just to take our hearts, no matter how hard or critical or cantankerous or broken or wicked or cynical. God, we just want to lay it down at your feet. We don't want to become callous people. We don't want these flames of hell to just keep burning where one day we become indistinguishable from our own vices and our own sin. We don't need to do that. Jesus bore our sin for us. What we need to do, what we need to do is trust in our sin-bearing God. Our King who became a servant. That's what we need to do. So we worship you now, God. Just cast our care and confess sin. We partake of the communion, God, reminding ourselves of the cross of your great mercy.